Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. Today we have something a little different. We're bringing you part one of a two-part podcast series discussing multiple sclerosis, or MS. As part of the MS Stakeholder Summit, a panel of experts discusses tailoring treatments to patients with MS, payer considerations, and more. Hello, and welcome to the American Journal of Managed Care Stakeholder Summit. Our program is entitled New Treatment Landscapes in MS, Preventing Long-Term Disability Through High-Efficacy Treatments in Early MS. I'm Dr. Neil Minkoff, the Chief Medical Officer of COAS Healthcare and Consulting. Joining me today in the virtual discussion are my colleagues, Dr. Thomas Leist, the Director of the Comprehensive Multiple Sclerosis Center at the Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Dr. Darren Akuda, Professor in the Department of Neurology, University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, Dr. Maria Lopes, Chief Medical Officer at AMC Health, and Dr. Nancy Ross, Clinical Pharmacist at the Multiple Sclerosis Center of Atlanta. Today, our panel of experts will explore opportunities for improving long-term patient outcomes in MS through earlier use of high-efficacy therapies, including those of clinical and payer considerations. So thank you for joining, and with that, we'll begin. One of the things I'd like to try to understand to make sure that we're all getting settled in the same place and to make sure our audience is in the same position as we are is to just kind of get an idea of the progressive nature of MS and the clinical burden and how that changes as the disease progresses. Um, Maybe Dr. Okuda, you could address some of that to help us get started. Great. So multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune condition in which a person's immune system misrecognizes components uh, within the the human body. So uh, like with rheumatoid arthritis where the target may be joints, In the case of multiple sclerosis, the the target can be the brain, the optic nerve, uh, or the spinal cord. And uh, what's really interesting is that this is a condition that has uh, a high degree of heterogeneity, and not all patients actually progress, but a meaningful amount do. In fact, there are some people that actually can remain asymptomatic for their entire life, uh, which really punctuates how how the management of of multiple sclerosis uh, can be very difficult uh, in that setting because we basically treat people on probabilities of of having an outcome that we think uh, is is suboptimal. Now, as a person somewhat evolves, as a person with MS who who evolves uh, in in their experience, they may require a a higher degree of of care, and, and this could involve treatments. So there could be a a switch in the therapies that they're on. There could be supportive therapies or even the use of symptomatic agents. Uh, But uh, one thing is is for sure that that the disease itself uh, is significant. It is still the number one reason why young people are impaired neurologically. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, right? So so I'd like to kind of draw some some other folks into the conversation, but but I'll address, you know, sort of my first follow-up question to Dr. Lopes, which is, you know, there, there, there needs to be some 
confluence, right, between the way payers approach MS and the way clinicians are approaching, or the, the active clinicians who are seeing the patients are approaching MS. Could, could you speak a little bit about how, from your point of view as a payer, you look at those and where those opportunities for convergence occur? Yeah, absolutely. I think what Dr. Kudis said is very important. It's a very serious disease. Uh, it's not always predictable. Uh, high degree of heterogeneity. Um, not everyone responds uh, to treatments and also treatments may need to be individualized based on patient characteristics, patient preferences, uh, you know, administrative uh, alternatives, oral sub-Q, IV. And so I think payers do recognize this. Also, these are expensive treatments. The most expensive treatment is the one that's not adhered to. So I think we recognize the value of um, even shared decision-making and individualizing uh, patient need for, for choice. Dr. Leist, you uh, run a, a major uh, comprehensive multiple sclerosis center and a major medical uh, center in, in a major urban area and uh, are dealing with a number of payers, but also a very large and diverse patient population. So, you know, how do you uh, take a look at this? And, 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 and you know, you have uh, in your practice a certain patient journey, and how do you interact with some of these different, uh, uh, you know, pressures around guiding a patient through their patient journey? I think one thing is important to keep in mind that our view of multiple sclerosis over the years has changed a, a little bit uh, and has significantly affected also how we would like to progress in a patient's journey once the patient has been identified with the condition of multiple sclerosis. And so I often refer to this as the window of opportunity. So that is that the patient early on in uh, his or her condition, and keep in mind 75% of patients are women, uh, that the patient has a window of opportunity where if we intervene most effectively for this particular patient. The patient can enjoy uh, uh, probably MS as a manageable disease. And you made a very important point and uh, Dr. Lopes made uh, another very important point. So you made, uh, both of you made the point that MS is heterogeneous, that there are patients with less involved disease at presentation and patients that present with very significant involved uh, disease at initial clinical presentation. And Dr. Okuda is obviously also keenly aware and he alluded to this, to the fact that there is a prodromal phase of multiple sclerosis where the patient has the condition but it's clinically not yet apparent. And so when these patients uh, then come to uh, uh, attention by a neurologist, it is really important that there is risk of proportion and patients with very minimal disease may be treated differently and may have the choice of a different mode of action than a patient that already presents at initial uh, uh, interaction with, with an MS doctor or a neurologist with markers of significant uh, likelihood for disease progression. There, Obviously, we want to reach towards the highest efficacy medications that we can give the patient to keep them stable versus for somebody else with optic neuritis, for example, and one or two lesions on the brain MRI, 
there are potentially other considerations that we are bringing into the, into the uh, fray. It is also important to note that while traditionally we were thinking of multiple sclerosis as a condition of that affects individuals of Northern European extraction, it has yeah. become absolutely clear that, for example, uh, women of African-American descent uh, share probably a higher risk of having multiple sclerosis than Caucasian women. So it's even higher. And it's very important to note that in uh, minorities or in individuals of mixed ethnic origin, very often the disease uh, is more aggressive. It feels to me as someone who's been involved in medication management as if the structure around MS management or at least the paradigm around MS management has changed pretty dramatically over the last, say, 15-ish years, right? Where there was, you know, the use of self-injected medications and maybe, a, you know, like we did with a lot of things, you know, you start like hypertension, you start with a beta blocker, then you add an ACE inhibitor, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, progressive therapy. And it feels like that paradigm has changed in MS. And, and, and maybe Dr. Kuda, you could talk a little bit. I know you've been an advocate for early aggressive therapy for, for quite some time. So maybe you could, could talk about how you've helped to change that paradigm away from incremental therapy to, you know, more aggressive early stage therapy. So I, I think what may be important is to go back in history and understand uh, why we had an escalation approach back in the day. And it really okay. was because of the, the treatments we, the, the limited treatments that we had. So in 1993, we had beta-seron and around that time, a patient had to win a lottery uh, to actually receive treatment. And then I believe Avonex and Copaxone followed in 96. Early 2000, you had Rebif and then the introduction of Tasabri or Natalizumab and then the entry of a variety of oral treatments. So I think what has happened over the past 10, 15 years is you've had a number of different treatments that have differing mechanisms of action. And then you have science that has advanced as well, um, highlighting how other cell types may be more important uh, in the pathophysiology of multiple sclerosis. So I think, uh, I think the availability of higher efficacy agents and that list may vary. You know, some would put uh, alemtuzumab, uh, tasabri, ocrelizumab, mavenclad, uh, ofatumumab, you know, within that list and may leave out zaposia, fingolimod, mazent, or may include them, and then you have everything else. So I, I really think that, you know, looking back on history, that's all we had. So that's all we knew was, well, if, if things seemed worse, we would escalate you to an interferon-based therapy if you were on copolymer. And then now you have a wealth of treatments to choose from. And, and the rationale for using a high-efficacy treatment first is to allow for preservation of neuronal tissue, because when an exacerbation occurs and and if history is correct, an MRI relapse will outnumber a clinical relapse by 10 to 1. And that's a key marker in this no evidence of disease activity metric that has been created, whether or not we uh, agree upon that as being a valuable tool. Um, we know that we see a lot more disease on MRI than we do clinical uh, symptoms uh, that represent exacerbations. 
So we, we embark on this high efficacy approach in an effort to prevent disease from happening because we can't take that away. If someone has optic neuritis uh, or has a bad spinal cord relapse, steroids does not fix, does not improve their long-term outcome. It is what it is. And you hope that recovery is full. Um, it'll be dependent on race and ethnicity, as Dr. Lysette made mention of, and a whole variety of other factors. So in you know, the philosophy of giving the best first uh, is, it appears to be this, a smart philosophy. Now, it may, may not be the right philosophy in all cases, though, because there is risk of over-treating people. But you know, the risk to the system and the pair, right, is missing an individual, a group of individuals that then have disease activity and progression in which they're now pulling on resources that need to be covered from the pair uh, because of inadequate disease management. So I want to pull Dr. Ross in here, if I may, which is, you know, balancing patient concerns, coverage determinations, the desire, the paradigm changing to be more aggressive earlier on based on, you know, what, what's available, right? It wasn't available to me 20 years ago, what we can do now and so on. Like, but you're, you're probably caught in the middle of that conversation quite a bit. Um, how do you help to balance those determinations, right? Between say just at a minimal, what, what the aggressive, you know, wanting to hit early, you know, aggressive therapy versus coverage determination. And, and I, you know, one of the things Dr. Kuda said was, I guess maybe the, what I, one of the things I took away was that the definition of high efficacy is not necessarily standardized. Yeah, Correct. right. Is that fair to say from what you said? And so like, how do you help people kind of navigate through that? Well, and the troubling part is that not all of the payers have really you know, re or adjusted their um, preferred agents. So they may still have the more traditional older agents listed as preferred on their formulary. And when you have a, a physician that wants to be aggressive early on, maybe they have um, some lesions in some suspicious places, or maybe they're young or their ethnicity you know, looks like they're going to be, have advancing, progressing disease, and you want to start them on something that's more high efficacy than your traditional copaxone glutirimer kind of patient, then trying to convince the payer that they need to go along with that and then justify your reasoning um, when there's no national guidelines or, or anything that we really have to kind of argue one way or the other. And, and it can certainly be challenging. And then that can almost scare off a new patient. Because if you're telling a new patient that you're going to put them on this excellent medication that just came out, and we have a lot of, of high hopes for it, and we think that it's going to keep you from getting worse in the long run, which is great. And then they start to get very scary letters from their insurance companies saying this is not preferred, we want to switch you to something else, this is cheaper. I actually have patients that will say to me, but I want to save my insurance company money. I'm like, that's very nice, but we need to do what's good for you and make it work. So it, it can be quite challenging, yes. I think some of us who are not MS specialists, but have, you know, by necessity had to have some level of education, started with relapse rate and annualized relapse rate and then move to maybe lesions and then brain volume and then NIDA 
and how you're using those in the clinic as opposed to how we might be using them to evaluate clinical literature and or coverage determinations. And that's kind of open to everybody. But I, I do think that that's been something where I personally have felt challenged trying to keep up with, with what is the right outcome for me to be looking at. So maybe I can uh, jump in over here a little bit and, and mention one of the challenges that I agree exists is the fact that we don't really have markers by which we can characterize the patients or group the patients when they come to us. It is, a, as I mentioned, the clinical picture that is there. It, I mentioned the young woman with two brain lesions and an optic neuritis, but an otherwise normal exam with good recovery versus uh, an African-American 25-year-old with many lesions on the brain MRI and spinal cord involvement. These are two completely different patients and they require a different approach. I also take to what Maria Loeb said uh, into account that very often patients can't percolate to a neurologist uh, or they are not seen or they are seen by a general neurologist. I do think neurology is probably at this point in time at the same stage that internal medicine was 25, 30 or 40 years ago uh, or oncology for that matter, where my colleagues in an academic department don't feel comfortable to treat MS patients because of the plethora of the number of new medications that have become available. And so if I have within an academic department a certain hesitancy, you can imagine and this is not an, a negative statement, it's just a challenge for a, for a community uh, living neurologist that is not exposed to grants every week or so, uh, how to keep up with all of this. And in a certain way, we need to also recognize that the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis, why we have the diagnostic criteria, often for a practitioner, uh, uh, represent a challenge, right? The patient comes in with many different symptoms, but it isn't MS, but ultimately the patient is diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And so... I do think that uh, the initial encounter in, in a world, whenever possible, in the minimum should be by a neurologist or the diagnosis should be by a neurologist, preferably by an MS specialist or by a person with an MS specialty focus. We need to recognize that this world has become more complex and the community neurologist that sees perhaps five, 10, perhaps 15 MS patients in his or her practice will not be familiar with all MS medication. They will have one or two that they like. And if the patient is then beyond this one or two, then they will be handed on to, the, to an MS center or they need to go somewhere else. What's lost in that approach is the window of opportunity because the patient may be on a medication that they shouldn't be on for too long. What's lost is in this approach is also the certainty that the patient actually has multiple sclerosis. So uh, it's still not infrequent in my practice that I see somebody that has been treated many years for multiple sclerosis, may even be off the board of the NGO, of the major NGO on this 
proud that he was blessed with such an indolent course of MS. And everything is true except that the person has MS. I understand that there is an imbalance between skilled practitioners and the group of patients and the access, but that's certainly something. If you are already going to pay for a medication that is very expensive, maybe to have the patient evaluated and maybe to make that possible. You know, it's, it's kind of, uh, you're going to give somebody a very expensive or in the genetics, perhaps less expensive, but still expensive medication. And once a patient has been diagnosed with MS, it's very difficult to shake that diagnosis because it goes so deep into a person's, into a person's experience. I do agree with Maria, and that may be perhaps not such a popular statement, but uh, I mean, we have classes of medications, and one really needs to look at what the individual medications bring in addition to other representatives in the same class to see whether there is at least some element of equivalency. My biggest concern over there is obviously that as the players may change from year to year, that it's not necessarily upon the patient to have to change medications every year. And so when I'm starting a patient on new therapy, my goal is to choose the right medication that this patient actually can stay on for an extended period of time. I will then, with clinical exam, with MRI, but also with history, evaluate this patient regularly. And we have frequent contacts and that's where then also the places for physician extenders, nurse practitioners, PA, uh, I think a good way to use is to bring them in so that we can have frequent contacts with the patients, not just once or twice a year. So when we start a medication, contact after six or seven weeks to make sure that they tolerate, that they don't have side effects, or help them to be compliant with the medication and then along the, along the axis in, in that respect. But I do think that uh, one needs to keep in mind that once disability is established in a patient, we are on the other side of the, of the, the game a little bit. Uh, we have lost opportunity in that particular patient. So I, I look at that as being a, uh, somewhat of a two-path description. So on the one hand, you have outcomes that relate to individuals not being treated optimally. Yep. And it's more primal. You know, it's multiple calls to the office. It's multiple now video visits or face-to-face -face visits. Mm -hmm. So it's additional medical visits. It's additional testing to get them onboarded to a new therapy, right? Prior authorization takes time from all key stakeholders, medical offices, payer offices, et cetera. And so you have all of that <clears throat> somewhat churning. So there's, there's that yep. aspect to it. And then on the other side, there's the aspect of, of inadequate disease control. You miss an opportunity, person has a bad exacerbation. As a consequence, you know, they will be in need of maybe a hospitalization maybe inpatient stay with plasma exchange, high dose steroids followed by inpatient rehab um, and all the negative things they carry forward with that uh, inflammatory attack 
if that person remains uh, covered under your program. So <clears throat> there are some data out there with respect to what does it look like when we start a person on <clears throat> a high efficacy regimen or if we use something that's more moderate. And there is a publication by uh, Harding and their experience out of the UK that encompassed nearly 600 patients in which they looked at this and a hundred of them were treated with what, what they deemed to be high efficacy involving alemtuzumab and natalizumab in comparison to other therapies that they lumped into this moderately effective group. And long story short, you know, the five-year EDSS outcomes, which may be too deep for a payer, right? I don't know how, how long a person is typically covered uh, under one pair. Um, they found a difference that benefited those on, on more robust treatment. So the treating hard, treating early seemed to be the better approach. But I think, you know, the outcomes there may actually be very simple to explain. The one thing about these therapies that are deemed to be more highly efficacious, Ocrevus, Ofatumumab, or Kesimpta, Tasabri, Lemtrada, Mavenclad, they have one characteristic. They force patients to be compliant. You get exposed to this drug, it has a durable effect in comparison to Tecfidera that you just may not take every 12 hours or generic dimethylfumarate, in which there are over 10 generic variants now that are FDA approved. And that's really gonna change the, the scope of, of a disease outcome when you have that playing field set up that way.